verses 1 through 10. Hear now God's word. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like, like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let me begin by saying that there is way more in this text than we can deal with in one sermon, and so I hope to just draw out a few matters that are most relevant to Advent. Nineteen years ago or so, I planted a wisteria in my front yard, uh, which became large and invasive, and so I cut it to the ground. I actually cut it to the ground more than once, uh, but it came back bigger and more invasive than ever, Um, which reminded me, uh, some of you guys might appreciate this, when I was a young teenager, I can remember being told that if I would shave that dark fuzz on my upper lip, that it too would come back bigger and stronger. Uh, I think that was just a trick to get me to shave. Um, Isaiah's prophecy is giving us a similar image regarding the future of the Davidic kingdom. Isaiah 11 begins with the claim that new life is going to spring up from a stump. He's telling us that a time would come when the powerful family of King David will have lost its status and will have returned to the status of an average and undistinguished family. And this indeed describes the family of Joseph and Mary when Jesus arrives on the scene. From the first Sunday of Advent to the second, Isaiah's imagery of a military of military and mountains changes to animals and children, but the message does not change. Nevertheless, both promise a day when there will be justice and peace on the earth. Isaiah 2 was somewhat veiled, while Isaiah 11 11 is explicit regarding the Messiah. Both passages proclaim a message that was really almost unbelievable at the time that it came. Things were so bad, given the situation in which God's people were living, in some ways, like today. So let's have some historical context here. Judah 
was living in a time of cultural upheaval. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been dismantled and deported, and now its Assyrian conquerors were threatening Judah. Several weak and ineffective Davidic kings had left Judah unfaithful and therefore vulnerable. Therefore, God sends Isaiah to prophesy to them that judgment is coming to Judah. The Apostle Peter will echo this theme in 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So there's a dual judgment about to take place upon Judah and then upon Assyria. Isaiah was looking far ahead of the exile that hadn't even happened yet. Ahead of a time when Israel would no longer have a descendant of David sitting on the throne. A time when the family tree of David would be cut down to a stump. And he tells them that from this stump will come a new descendant of David. Not just a son of David, but really a second David. We see this by his reference to Jesse, uh, David's father. He would, be, he would be and do what the other Davidic kings failed to be and do. This one, he said, will bear fruit. The fruit of peace and justice for all. In Isaiah 10:13, Assyria is boasting and saying, By the strength of my hand, I have done it. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. So Assyria is boasting of all of their power and how strong they are. They're a superpower. Note that all empires boast like this. Babylon, Russia, England, Japan, America. History has taught us what God does with such boasting. So when Assyria boasts that they have cut down the great, uh, the great, God says in chapter 10, verse 15, really kind of mocking them, shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up? Or as if a staff could lift up? as if it were not wood. So God is using Assyria as his own tool to bring judgment upon Israel and Judah. And when he is finished with that tool, Isaiah says in verse 12 of chapter 10, Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his works on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. So God's using Assyria, and he says, don't get too proud there, because when I'm through using you, then I'm going to turn to you. So Assyria's judgment is pictured in Isaiah 10, 33-34. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts will lop off the bow with terror... Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. And so Assyria is going to be destroyed. 
Now chapter chapter 11 begins with Isaiah's reflection on Israel's dire circumstances that have resulted from Assyria's oppression of them. Her glorious Davidic line, as we've said, has been reduced to a stump. Nevertheless, Isaiah's prophecy does not end with the stump. In fact, it only gets started. Though David's kingly through uh, though David's kingly line has been cut down to the root, there is a promise here that a new branch is going to come forth, and this is the promise of Advent. Roger Van Haren noted that Advent is rooted in promise, the promise that makes hope a way of life for God's people. God's promises thread their way through the scriptures and through history, whether they are the promises spoken to Moses at the burning bush or the elders of Israel when Moses uh, brought his report to David when he wanted to build a house for God or to the exiles who could not make their way home or to Mary of Nazareth who had nothing to offer but herself. God's promises are the only sure source of hope. Because Advent is a season to rehearse the promises of God. Therefore, Advent is a season of hope. So Isaiah declares that there shall come forth a rod or a shoot from the stem or the stump of Jesse, and a branch will grow out of his roots. That's verse 1 of chapter 11. So this is a messianic prophecy that speaks of Christ and his advent in the first century. You'll recall that Jesse is the father, was the father of David. Therefore, we know that Isaiah is prophesying of the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, that a son of David will come and rule the people of Israel and rule the world. All of chapter 11 is a description of that son of David and the kingdom that he will rule. John Piper observes, and what is so typical of the prophet of the prophets and so mystifying to us is that chapter 10 flows into chapter 11 seamlessly as if chapter 10 would happen on Monday and chapter 11 would happen on Tuesday. Read it again without the chapter division. The last verse, 34, God will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Chapter 11. Not the slightest indication that there might be 700 years separating these events. So he goes on to describe something that he said he was taught And it has to do with the way the prophets looked at the future. And I think this is really helpful for us, was for me. It's the way that uh, he said you may look at a mountain range with distant mountains and nearer mountains in in the one mountain range. And from a distance, it looks like one mountain. But in fact, if you started driving toward them, you would find out that it wasn't just one mountain, but a series of ever higher ridges with valleys in between. This is the prophetic perspective. From where, it, from where Isaiah stood, some of the ridges of judgment he knew were very near, 
But beyond that were other events he saw, not knowing how distant they were. And we have a commentary on this in the book of First Peter, where Peter tells us this about the prophets. This is really important. He says, of this salvation of the people of God, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Remember, we're talking about the Messiah. The grace They prophesied about his coming, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified, that is, the Spirit of Christ testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's what's happening with Isaiah. The Spirit of Christ, we're told, was in Isaiah prophesying about things that were yet to come, and Isaiah was trying to figure out what was going on. He's delivering the message. In other words, when the Spirit moved Isaiah to write, he didn't necessarily know how all the pieces were going to fit together. However, we have some advantages over the prophets. We have all the prophets, so we can compare them to each other. In addition, we have the New Testament's use of these Old Testament prophecies. So again, we have an inspired New Testament commentary on those prophecies. And we have the perspective of roughly 2,700 years that enables us to see many of the things that have happened. So now, after the judgment has come, Isaiah prophesies concerning the branch that will spring up from Jesse's root. It is clear that this branch is Christ. Under his kingly rule, justice will prevail because righteousness is going to characterize him and there will be peace among enemies. Isaiah 11:9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Ken Gentry offers some helpful insights here. He says, verse 4 strikes what sounds like a catastrophic note. The, Strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. This sounds like the second advent or the second coming of Christ, wherein he brings the final perfect peaceful order. So is it appropriate to speak of a slow and unfolding progress over time as post-millennialists do? Remember, we have to keep the prophetic mountain in perspective. The prophecy of Isaiah 11 clearly has the idea of gradualism built into it. First, as the prophecy opens, um, Israel is lying in destruction and despair under the dominion of Assyria. And yet Isaiah promises that God will renew a stump, the stump of Jesse. This promised renewal speaks of the future, first century coming of Christ, which is still several, several hundred years ahead. Thus, this prophecy isn't fulfilled all at once and catastrophically for the people who originally heard this word, uh, this word of encouragement. Second, the language of the prophecy in Isaiah 11.1 also suggests gradualism. It speaks of a root and a branch that will bear fruit. And fruit production from a tree naturally takes some time. Moreover, the dramatic destruction pictured in in chapter 11, verse 4 speaks of its certainty 
rather than its suddenness. The just order Christ brings in the world will certainly have power and it will certainly gain victory. That's certain. We're not sure when. We're not even sure of all the hows, but we are sure because it is the word of God. Mighty Assyria exercised power by the sword, but the branch of Jesse has such power that he can destroy with the mere breath of his mouth with his word. Isaiah isn't concerned with the question of the development or the timing of Christ's kingdom, but with the certainty of its victory whenever and however it comes. He is comparing and contrasting the present status of the Davidic line with its future glory. In this comparison, he holds up the great glory of Christ's kingdom as he pictures it in its earthly fullness. And so we're going to just do a quick walkthrough of these verses here. Really three parts. Verses uh, 1 through 5 give a description of the son of David, this future son of David, and the way he rules his kingdom. Verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The book of Revelation draws out the truth of Isaiah 11. Jesus took his identity in the book of Revelation from verse 1, and we're quoting from Revelation here, a rod from the stem, or excuse me, from Isaiah 11, a rod from the stem of Jesse and his identity uh, from verse 10, the root of Jesse, and he put it like this in Revelation 22:16. Here's what Jesus says. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus is not just a descendant, that is, a rod and a branch of Isaiah 11.1. He is also a root of David. Jesus was David's father and his son. He is the beginning and the end. This is how Jesus stumped the Pharisees, you'll recall, with his own identity when they said in Matthew 22, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And of course we have Jesus' preexistence. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. And we have his incarnation as the son of David, as we read in Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33. He, Jesus, will be great. He will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his and of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 2, Isaiah 11, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. As Jesus begins his public ministry, he was anointed by God. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the Spirit of the Lord is clearly, visibly upon him. And the Proverbs tell us that, of course, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so this branch of Jesse 
has everything he needs to bring God's world back from its rebellion to the knowledge of God and the fear of the Lord. Verse, the first part of verse 3, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. All of his thinking and action will be in total submission to the divine will, the one who commissioned this ruler to act for him. Can you imagine if we had a ruler like that? Who always did the will of the Lord. Always. Moreover, the text tells us that this submission is not a burden, but rather it's his delight. If we remember in Psalm 2, the rulers of the world find God's word to be a burden. It's a binding. We want to break these chains. We won't we don't want God telling us what to do. That's what's wrong with the world. But this ruler delights in those very same rules, those very, those, that very same law. Moreover, the text, again, tells us it's not a burden but a light. If we were to add up the seven gifts of the Spirit we read about here, we end up with a perfect ruler. And this makes him utterly reliable in his judgments among men. As Jesus said in John 8, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. The rest of verse 3 through verse 5. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and the faithfulness and faithfulness the belt of his waist. These verb, verb, verses represent a sampling of the deeds that he will perform, and uh, perf- excuse me, the deeds that this perfect ruler will do. His judgments are not just based on what he sees or upon reports. He won't simply rely on that. He will he will possess all knowledge. And his decisions will therefore always be correct and comprehensive. He's omniscient. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man. Therefore, his rule will be just. He will be he'll give an impartial administration. And he will not overlook the unimportant people. Isn't that one of the great problems in politics? The insiders, the powerful, the rich, the influential... But under this ruler, the innocent will be vindicated and the wicked will be killed. Paul uses these same words, uh, the words of verse 4, Isaiah 11:4. that is, with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. He uses that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And here, here's that. Uh, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. This is a reference to the second coming, the second advent, which means that Isaiah, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, includes descriptions of Jesus at his first advent and at his second advent with no hint of any time lapse. Again, this is the prophetic mountain perspective. Verse 5 describes his entire reign as marked by righteousness and faithfulness. 
Then the second section is verses 6 through 9, give a description of the peace of that global kingdom where the knowledge of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. Verses 6 through 9, the wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this section, I think, is highly poetic language, which, by the way, is given to us because it teaches us things that straight prose don't teach us. And it calls on us to think about a world like that. Romans 8, 19 through 22, seems to be describing the same kind of thing where we read, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. This is a picture of something radically new. So the summary of the point is given in verse 9, first negatively and then positively. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Nothing in the world, not its leaders, not the powerful, can destroy the kingdom of God. Let that soak in. What are you worried about right now? All those forces out there, all those powers, all those politicians, all the whatever. Let me say this again. Nothing in the world can destroy the kingdom of God. Isaiah says this is ultimately because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so Isaiah says that it will be a global kingdom as, and as we sit here, by the way, it already is a global kingdom. God has his people everywhere. They're meeting now. Some in secret, some in hiding, some in public. Some in glorious buildings, some in holes. Some in prison. Some in war-torn areas. He has his people all over the earth. It has stretched to the ends of the earth. It is the leaven that we were told it would be that has penetrated the whole world. And under the spirit of this king, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the Lord is so present and powerful that it fills the earth like water covers the sea. When is this going to happen? Well, as I said, it's already begun. In Isaiah 65, verse 25, these very words are repeated almost exactly. It says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And this comes at the end of a paragraph in Isaiah 65 that begins in verse 17 
For behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. This means he is creating in stages. Its newness grows. It's gradual. It doesn't appear all at once. The first advent of the Messiah opens the stage for the final redemption. And the second advent of the Messiah opens another. At the end of that period, the final state of sinlessness, deathless perfection in creation will come. So as we look at the prophetic mountain range, the Messiah, this branch of Jesse, comes and begins his kingdom and reign 700 years later at the first advent. And that kingdom and that rule continues to this day, and his kingdom will culminate in the second advent and the merging of the new heavens and the new earth. And then the last verse, verse 10, says that the nations of the world will come to the Messiah and find rest in his glory. It says, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. This verse shows how this perfect ruler is, is attracting and will continue to attract people from near and far. Paul quotes this verse in Romans 15:12 as something that is coming true in his own mission to the Gentiles. We've been reading about it in the book of Acts as we've been working through that book. Here's what he says in Romans 15:12, And again, Paul says, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall have hope. In other words, the whole world. God intends for the nations of the world to be part of the kingdom of his Messiah. The root of Jesse is a sign to all the nations of the world to seek the Messiah. This is the central meaning uh, of our time, that Christ reigns to reach the nations. This is the story that is being told again in the book of Acts and continues to be told today. When all his final works of judgment and salvation is done, he will enter his rest, and one word will describe him and his work. And that word is glory. Glory is magnifying all that he is. We will see him as he is. In fact, 1 John says we will be like him, for we shall see him just as he is in all of his glory. So, that's what Advent is about. And there's still more to come. Let's pray. O Lord, you are faithful and true, and your promises are certain. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. For all your promises in Christ are yes, and in him, amen, to uh, to your glory. For you have established us in Christ and, and have sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Indeed, you sent your Son, a branch from the root of Jesse, and he now reigns with all authority in heaven and on earth. And the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Help us now to stand firm on your promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Isaiah 11 reminds us that Christians who still long, we still long for that same messianic completion of creation at the second advent, that we have a great deal in common with Israel. They look forward to the promised branch of Jesse's root, and they had no place, they had to place their hope in the certain promises of God. We too long for creation's promised destiny, Uh, as a place where peace and justice and grace have the final word. The appearance of the branch from the stump of Jesse has has been, since the day of Pentecost, drawing the divided world to himself. Thus the church is composed of people from every tribe, every nation. As Paul said in Ephesians 1.10, God's plan is that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In a world full of failed leaders and injustice and strife, Isaiah declared that one day a leader would come who would bring a kingdom of justice and peace to the world. And it seems impossible most days. But in these days of Advent, we are reminded that he came once and that he is at work, and that he will come again, and he will finish that work. Thanks be to God. O God, our hope, hear again the cry of the exiles, imprisoned in the dark land of gloom and despair, for we are often weak and fearful. Come among us and strengthen and heal. Look with pity upon your people. Enable us to see the light of our Savior, to see the promised uh, branch of Jesse's root, who is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Fill us with thanksgiving and the joy of your generosity and grace, which is made known through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to forsake our own way and to gladly follow our Savior, for he always seeks our good. May his will be our will. Teach us to walk by faith and not by sight, for you are our faithful covenant-keeping God. Bless now our resting and our feasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.